morning, everyone. I want to introduce our guest speaker. This is Jason Crosby. He is the station manager for Moody Radio. So please welcome him up front. Good morning. It is good to be back with you. Good to worship with you this morning. If you brought your Bible, we are going to be in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to take a closer look at the passage that was read for us this morning. It's uh, probably very familiar to you. It is the parable of the Good Samaritan, and while you're turning there, if we've not met, so uh, as Jared mentioned, I am the uh, station manager at Moody Radio here uh, in, the, in the Quad Cities. Does DeWitt consider themselves part of the Quad Cities? No? I'm sorry. Sorry about that. So, uh, so we reached DeWitt. <laughs> we, uh, we are, um, uh, if you uh, know where Coal Valley is down in the Quad Cities, that's actually where the station is at. We call ourselves the station in the middle of nowhere because we're in between two farms that uh, basically have uh, nothing around them, except I do know this, and it's because I can smell it, there to the north of the station there is a hog barn, uh, and, um, and that is not the smell of money. I just do know that much. So, uh, so as uh, part of my responsibilities as station managers is to do things just like this. I get to go into, uh, into churches and, and get to share God's word. I uh, have my Master's of Divinity in Expository Preaching, and, um, and so I love putting that, uh, that degree to work, so it really is uh, a thrill to, to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you've not checked us out, we're located at 89.3 FM, and uh, one of the great things that Moody Radio is able to do is uh, we're able to go where you are. See, when uh, Pastor Jeff returns from his sabbatical, you're not able to take Jeff home with you. So, so he gives a great sermon. Jeff doesn't go home with you and spend the rest of the week with you. It might even be a little awkward if he did. But either way, so with Moody Radio, we get to go where you're at and we get to be a part of that sanctification process and be a part of God developing you into the man and the woman that he desires for you to be. So a little bit about my family. I've been married to Susie for 14 years we have three children. Brindley is eight. She's our extrovert. She's our creative. Everybody's her friend. She uh, loves drama, music, dance. Madison's our middle daughter. She will be six next month. And man, did that time fly by. She can be an extrovert when she wants to be, but she's mostly an introvert. She's got to warm up to you first, but she has a great sense of humor and a quick wit. And then when we thought that we had the two girls figured out, Eli came along, and he is our son, and uh, he has taught us that we just don't have a clue about parenting. And so, so actually, they, they all have. Eli is three, and uh, he'll be four in January, and he has an even, an even quicker wit than Madison, which makes him uh, fun. to. They are all fun to uh, be around. There's not a piece of furniture that the boy cannot climb, and, uh, and so we... We, just, we have a good time. We're in our glory days, and uh, we, we really enjoy our, uh, our family. So one of my responsibilities as a station manager is to record what is uh, considered a 30-second spot. You might think of it like a 30-second commercial. And I, I do that uh, right around once a month, sometimes twice, and, and it's a spot that airs randomly throughout the day. And I 
I enjoy the challenge of writing this spot. It is a, uh, it's a creative outlet for me. And, and often when I'm uh, piecing this together, it, it sends me off on a journey for something that I already enjoy, and that is useless trivia. And so, see, what a, when a good spot is put together, it has at the beginning what's called a hook. It's, it's a, a tease, something that's going to keep you listening for the rest of the time. And so I, uh, here's a, a hook that I used in a, a spot last month. Here it is, ready? Here's the hook. 288 questions. Any guesses as to what's behind 288 questions? If you're a mom, you know it's the average number of questions that moms get in one day. 288 questions. So in, in last month's uh, spot, I shared about a, uh, a tunnel that leads to a bridge. And the idea for that spot actually started in Dubuque. There's a water park in Dubuque that we enjoy going to as a family, and it's located right on the Mississippi. And a short walk away from this water park is a train bridge. It's the the Dubuque Railroad Bridge. And my, my family, we've seen this bridge many times, but our last visit was the first time that we ever saw a train use the bridge. And they needed the bridge, obviously, to cross the Mississippi River. And as the train was crossing the bridge, I thought to myself, this train is going unusually slow. And so I scanned the bridge and, and, and noticed on the Illinois side of the river, the train has to go through a tunnel shortly before it gets to the bridge. So thanks to Google, I learned that this tunnel is 851 feet long, and it's been in use since 1867. There are an estimated seven trains that pass through this tunnel every single day, and due to the sharp 90-degree turn that happens inside the tunnel, trains are only allowed to drive 10 miles per hour through it. So for most of us in this room, that information has no meaning for any of our lives. But if you are an engineer for Canadian Pacific or Canadian National Railway, you not, even, not only need to know the information, you also need to apply it. Failure to apply this information could be costly for you, the company that is trusting you, or the companies trusting you with their cargo, the homeowners who are living on the top of the bluff, and the almost 60,000 people who call Dubuque and East Dubuque home. You see, the evidence of an engineer applying the information that I just presented is a train going 10 miles per hour through the tunnel and across the bridge. So as you open to Luke, and hopefully you're already there, we're going to look at uh, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, and I'm going to guess you know this story. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And in our text, we're going to see that knowledge of the instruction to love God is not enough. It isn't enough to say that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must apply that knowledge. And the main idea that we're going to see is that one result of your love for God 
should be an increase in your love for your neighbors. So let's look at Luke 10, 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word because it realigns our thinking. We thank you, Father, for the time that we get to spend in your word because, God, we know that your word pierces. We know it convicts. We know it woos us. God, we just uh, we know that it's going to strengthen us, that you're going to, to use it to fill up our tanks for whatever is coming our way this week. And so, Father, we just commit this time to you. We thank you, Father, for the worship through music that we've already taken part in, and now, God, be worshiped through the proclamation of your word. So that's why we're here. We're here to worship. So, Father, help us to, to focus in and hear what it is that you would say to us this morning. God, be worshiped. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in our text, or uh, earlier I mentioned, kids ask moms an average of 288 questions per day. Moms, by contrast, ask right around 100 questions per day. And of all the questions that you may ask or that you might get asked, none is more important than the question that is asked in this text. You see, inherently built into each one of us is the knowledge that we don't cease to exist following death. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, One Minute After You Die, describes it this way. One minute after you slip behind the parted curtain, you will either be enjoying a personal welcome from Christ or catching your first glimpse of gloom as you have ever known it. Either way, your future will be irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. And so, while relatives and friends plan your funeral, you will be more alive than you have ever been. You will either see God on his throne surrounded by angels and redeemed humanity, 
or you will feel an indescribable weight of guilt and abandonment. There is no destination midway between these two extremes. Just gladness or gloom. Well, in our text, the lawyer decided to test Jesus over the path to gladness. And it's important that we understand some things that are going on in our text. And let's begin with the man's profession. Luke tells us that he was a lawyer. And he wasn't a lawyer in the same way that you and I might think of the occupation. He didn't prosecute or defend clients. He didn't bring them before a judge, nor did he prepare or review contracts or advise clients on any other legal matters. But he did have knowledge of the law. But that knowledge wasn't rooted in secular laws. His knowledge was in religious law. He was familiar with the religious laws of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as well as the teachings of influential rabbis whose commentary on the Pentateuch would also be considered law. And so it's also possible that he, as an expert of the law, was a first among equals. Luke tells us that he he stood up to put Jesus to the test. So perhaps in your mind's eye, it might be helpful to process the setting this way. When you were a kid, did you ever say something or say that something was true to a group of friends or promise to do something, but then have your fingers crossed? What did it mean to have your fingers crossed? It meant that you weren't telling the truth or you weren't going to go through with it. And so the, the, there is a, uh, the lawyer's motive... In a teaching setting like this, it's quickly revealed. And so while his outward action may have indicated respect, his inward attitude was completely disrespectful. And so the lawyer's question was meant to test Jesus. That word, test, means to entrap someone into into giving information that's going to jeopardize the person. And so the best way to do that in that moment was to ask the question that is commonly discussed, or it was back then, and it's still discussed today, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you know, at your church, right here, you believe that this question is so important that you have the answer listed on your website. It's under the what we believe section. It is so central to who you are as a body that you use it to distinguish yourself, to set yourselves apart from other organizations, even from other churches. Here's what it says on your website. We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. That's, amen, absolutely, that is a beautiful, succinct, biblically accurate statement. And so here's, here's the deal, though. The answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It is bigger than any organization. This answer governs both believers and unbelievers. And it applies to all who have lived, died, and are going to live. 
And so when mankind tries to answer this question apart from God, we end up with the same answer that the lawyer had. You see, even though the lawyer answers his own question, in verse 27 it says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. The key to what the lawyer really believed about the answer is found in his question. Here's his question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So to inherit is to receive something. And this request involved the reception of eternal life, which is part of the future world that God brings. And the lawyer wanted to be sure to earn it. The lawyer's question was really this, how can I earn my righteousness and eventually obtain or inherit the reward for my righteousness? And so we need to keep this question nearby because in the following verses, the lawyer is going to expound on his question and and by doing so, he's really going to expose his own heart. So let's look at the dialogue. In verse 25, the lawyer says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, in verse 26, says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Do you see what Jesus did there? It's, it's, It's incredible. Jesus answers the lawyer's question with a question. He redirected the lawyer back to the law. One commentator put it this way, by responding... This way, Jesus identifies himself not as a radical who wishes to deny the teaching of Jewish tradition, but as one who wishes to reflect on what God requires. He sends the lawyer to their shared source of authority, the law, God's instruction to his people. See, now the pressure is no longer on Jesus to answer correctly. The pressure now is on the lawyer who did answer correctly. Look at verse 27. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer's answer comes from two different passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And combined, these two passages are commonly called the great commandment. Loving God with the heart, requires a response to God from the the innermost center of your being. Loving God with your soul brings in the place of the vital life force that energizes us, our conscience, aliveness. Loving with your strength introduces the element uh, element of energetic, physical action. And loving with your mind identifies the importance beyond the emotional of the thinking and the planning processes which the mind contributes. And so to love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean to love them as much as you love yourself. But it does mean to love your neighbor in a way that you would love yourself. And so the call is to behave toward the other with the same consideration and concern that one naturally shows about one's own welfare. And so make sure you catch this. The path to eternal life 
begins with loving God. John MacArthur says, all evangelism begins here. It is not about this life. It is not about prosperity, health, happiness, healing, success, money, possessions, or freedom from trouble in this life. MacArthur calls that junk bond evangelism. And so, if you're going to do some evangelism, you've got to move people from Jesus is going to fix me here to Jesus is going to deliver me in the life to come. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Friends, the best illustration of this taking place in your life is this. Obedience to God. The first step of obedience is to place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So is there evidence in your life that that's happened? Have you done that? So the most important question you will ever ask is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And now that we know the answer to that question, let's look at the fruit of that love. Here's the second point. Your love for God should increase your love for your neighbor. Your love for God should increase your love for your neighbor. You see, the lawyer should have ended the conversation right here. But he didn't. Have you ever watched a a game show where the the contestant is just, they're on a roll and they are racking up the dollars and you're seeing where they're at and and your advice to them would be to stop, but greed kicks in and they keep going only to lose it all? That's right here. That's right here. Somebody should have told the lawyer, apply the brakes, buddy. Apply the brakes. Jesus said to the lawyer in verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the lawyer continues, digs his heels in and replies with, who is my neighbor? All right, so earlier I asked you to keep in the back of your mind our summary of the lawyer's question. So let's bring that summary back to the forefront. The lawyer wants to know, how can I earn my righteousness, and eventually obtain or inherit the reward for my righteousness. So now that he has answered his own question, his character comes through. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now on the surface, this question looks credible. But it appears, it appears anyway that the lawyer is looking for clarification. He's not, so what's really going on? We have uh, friends who live uh, down near the Peoria area of Illinois, and uh, in the fall, for the last couple of years, we have taken them down to their farm so that they can ride in a combine and see this massive machine harvest corn or whatever they're harvesting. And so last year, while we visited, a belt broke on one of their uh, large tractors. 
And so I, I stood out of the way and, and I watched Ryan, who's the dad, and, and one of his sons work really hard to get a brand new belt on this tractor. And they completed every step except one. I watched them do this step when they took the belt off. So when they were ready, I walked to the other side of the tractor, executed the last step. The tractor fired right up, and that is the story of how I fixed Ryan Siebenthal's tractor. Now, in reality, the vast majority of that work was done by Ryan and his son. I did the bare minimum amount of work to be able to get credit for the fix. And that is what's going on here in our text. You see, the lawyer's true colors come out in that he didn't want just eternal, or just to inherit eternal life. He wanted to do the minimum amount of work to obtain it. You see, if the lawyer's question was allowed to stand, that means you and I have neighbors and non-neighbors. Neighbors you must love, but non-neighbors can be discriminated against. Neighbors get your attention. Non-neighbors can be ignored. And what Jesus did here with the man's question was he shifted the focus. See, normally when, when I'm reading, I have reading glasses, and I left them at home. <laughs> I can see you all perfectly, but what's before me is a little bit fuzzy. I, take, uh, I can take my glasses off, and I can still see parts of the words that are uh, before me. But when I have the glasses on, they bring clarity to what's exactly right here. They bring what is before me into focus. And they eliminate any need for guesswork. What Jesus is about to do here is bring clarity. He's going to bring clarity to our focus, and instead of seeing the, the blurry lines of the lawyer's view of neighbors, we're going to see clearly that God's view is not who is and who isn't your neighbor. Rather, how can you be neighborly? So look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the first part of this parable would have surprised no one. Jerusalem sat 2,600 feet above sea level. Jericho, is, Jericho rather, is 18 miles to the northeast of Jerusalem, yet it lies 825 feet below sea level. So that means the descent from Jerusalem to Jericho was right around 3,400 feet. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was steep, it was rugged, it was windy, it was full of caves and robbers that were known for hiding out in these caves. And the word robber that's used here is already a strong word, but it can mean bandits, it can mean political zealots, it can mean terrorists. 
robberies were often group affairs. And that's exactly what happened in Jesus' story. The man was outnumbered. He was robbed, he was assaulted, and then left with a 50% chance of life. In verse 31, Jesus said, Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest traveling down this road, that would not have been uncommon. Most priests didn't live in Jerusalem, and they would leave the city as soon as their uh, two weeks of temple service was over, and then they'd go home. As a matter of fact, in this story, the priest traveling down the road was actually a happy occurrence. That's what the words by chance imply. In other words, what are the odds? What are the odds? What incredible fortune. Here is a guy who is beaten so badly he might die, and here comes someone who can help. What good fortune. However, the story takes a twist, and for reasons that we simply don't know, reasons known only to Jesus as the storyteller, the priest saw the man and he crossed to the other side of the road. In verse 32, Jesus continued, So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, like a priest, a Levite was a religious leader, though he had different responsibilities at the temple. You could consider a Levite a priest's assistant. The Levite also was seen as a potential hero in the story in that he actually, he actually comes up to the man. He gets a closer look at the man than the priest had. And so the Levite was standing at the right place, or uh, at the place rather, where the half-dead man was lying and then walked away. So here we have two men who could have helped, who should have helped, and instead chose to do nothing. So who was going to help this clearly hurting man. And so this is where the story takes a twist. Jesus said in verses 33 and following, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Friends, there is no way, no way the lawyer saw this coming. Absolutely no way. Maybe, maybe a fellow Israelite, but certainly not a Samaritan. Not a Samaritan. So so picture this. Picture people who look and act just like you. Some of your best friends, your family, your closest colleagues. And in Jesus' story, those guys all assessed the situation and then walked away from the man in need. But you know who didn't? Your absolute worst enemy. In Jesus' story, the enemy was the hero. And Jesus came along and said, that person, go and imitate them. 
Samaritans were among the least respected people. But in Jesus' story, the Samaritan, whose theology Jesus judged defective on another occasion, was now a moral hero. The Samaritan treated the victim's wounds with bandages, oil, and wine, put him on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and cared for him. And look at the level of care that the Samaritan provides. He bandaged him up, provided the proper first aid, then he put the man on his animal, likely walked alongside the animal all the way to the inn, Innkeepers were not known for their extraordinary care, so the man fronted the money to denarii, or two days' wages, essentially enough money to uh, care for the, the man or keep the man under the care of the innkeeper for what would have been at that time 24 days. That's extraordinary hospitality. That's incredible compassion and care For a man he'd never met. And for a man who has a 50% chance of living. Which of these three proved to be a neighbor? That's Jesus' question. And it's an important question. Because prior to Jesus' parable, the lawyer believed that his neighbor was the priest and the Levite or a fellow Israelite. Jesus brought clarity to the lawyer, and now this wise man with a solid understanding of the law must also acknowledge that the Samaritan is also his neighbor. But he couldn't even say his name. Look at the the next part of these verses. 36 and 37, Jesus said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. (laughs) He can't even say Samaritan. That's how deep the hatred was. No acknowledgement that the one who showed mercy wasn't the priest, wasn't the Levite, wasn't a fellow Israelite. It was the Samaritan. Jesus' final words to the lawyer were this, you go and do likewise. One commentator summarized the parable this way, the outgrowth of our love for God is a response to our fellow humans. We are to love and be a neighbor to those who are part of our lives. Neighborliness isn't found in Bonds around being of the same race, nationality, color, gender, proximity, or by living in a certain neighborhood. We become a neighbor by responding sensitively to the needs of others. That's the example of the Samaritan, who not only soothed the beaten man's wounds, but also took him to a place of shelter, cared for him, and made sure his needs were met. The Samaritan cared for a person he had never seen before. Without asking questions, he served a cup of mercy to a person half dead. By reviving life, he showed life. If we seek to restrict those we serve, we need to hear the lesson Jesus taught the lawyer. 
The issue is not who we may or may not serve, but serving where needs exist. We are not to seek to limit who our neighbors might be. Rather, we are to be a neighbor to those whose needs we can meet. So, friends, what do we do? What do we do with today's message? Number one, if you've not settled the question of eternal life, let's take care of that. You cannot earn eternity with God in heaven. It's impossible. Your sin eliminates you from qualifying. However, there is one who lived the sinless life you couldn't live, died the death on the cross that you should have died, was buried and rose again, and he offers you eternity with God. He offers you salvation. But you have to take that first step of obedience and place your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus is ready to be Lord of your life. And you can delightfully follow him the rest of your days. So have you settled the question of eternal life? Second, in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, Christ calls you and me as Christ followers to love our enemies. Unlike the lawyer in Luke who could not get past his disdain for the Samaritan, Christ calls his followers to love their enemies. So what does that mean? It means to have an invincible goodwill toward them. Culture says that you only have to love those who think, look, and act like you. And that you can hate your enemy. Jesus says that's not true. So who is the difficult person? Maybe it's people, difficult people that you and Jesus both know are your enemy. And Jesus is pressing you to take steps toward loving them. Friends, I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard. Jesus knows it's going to be hard. But he offers you freedom from bearing the grudge and the power to extend love to your enemy. Number three, how are you doing at fully loving God? Loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Is he Lord? I mean, does he have everything? That's hard. That's hard as a Christ follower. Is he Lord over every area of your life? How are you doing at manifesting that love, that love for God toward others? Are you a loving neighbor? If you were to give yourself a number on a scale of 1 to 10, what would the number be? What number would your neighbor give you? Did you know that good neighboring is one of the things that led Rosaria Champagne Butterfield to faith in Christ? Prior to Christ, 
Rosaria identified as a lesbian who taught in the English Department and Women's Studies program at Syracuse. In 1997, while researching to launch an attack against the religious right, she wrote a newspaper article against the Promise Keepers. Ken Smith, the pastor of Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, read her article. Smith mailed Rosaria a letter, and it was kind and inquiring. And he invited her to explore questions like, how did you arrive at your interpretations? And how do you know you are right? Rosaria threw the letter away, only to fish it out later that night. She waited a week before deciding to take Ken up on his offer to grab dinner with him and his wife. What followed was a two-year friendship where Rosaria was invited into the world of the Smiths, and the Smiths were invited into Rosaria's world. There were book exchanges, meeting of friends, meals, prayer, and many conversations. Eventually, Rosaria started reading her Bible, and she was eventually forced to reckon with this penetrating thought about the Bible. What if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Rosaria continued with her Bible reading, eventually began attending church, and fought hard against coming to faith in Christ. And then, in her own words, she said, Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved. But the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Friends, listen, that process started with good neighboring. Who's the neighbor? Who's the neighbor that needs you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the time that we have spent in your word. God, it's your word. It's not mine. It's yours. And so, uh, Father, for some of us, this is a passage that is difficult to hear because it uh, teaches us uh, something about you, about your expectations of us that we may not want to hear. Oh, God, thank you for your tender love, your compassion your mercy toward us. Thank you, God, for loving us even when we don't feel like loving you. Thank you, Father, for your word that we are not left to go it alone to try and figure out what it is that you approve of and disapprove of. 
Thank you, God, for laying it out and making clear that obedience is what's expected. But man, there is grace when we fail to obey. And so, Father, as we have looked at now this parable of the Good Samaritan, oh God, help us to apply it. If there is any here, if there are any here or watching online who have yet to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, God, may they do that right now. May they admit in this place that they are a sinner, that their sin is against you, and God, that what they need is a Savior. And so may they acknowledge right now in this moment, may they just say that they place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And then, God, that they would follow him for the rest of their days. God, there are those of us in this room that we've done that. And, and God, now for us, our next step is to remove those categories of neighbor and non-neighbor. God, for us, the next step is to see who is it Where is it that you're working? What's the relationship that you desire to reconcile? God, help us to see that. Who who is the, the relationship that we should reach out to? Who's the person that needs faith in Jesus Christ, needs salvation? And and the 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 path that you desire for that person to come to salvation. God includes us. So who is it? God, help us to be bold. Help us to be unafraid. And then, Father, we, we know, God, that loving you is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and so, Father, no matter what score we may have given ourselves. The reality is this, that God, whether we could be one number higher or one number lower, you don't love us any less. And so, Father, your love toward us is perfect. And so it, it is not based on our works, our good deeds, it is wrapped up entirely in who you are. And so, Father, we pray that out of that unconditional love, God, that we would choose obedience even when it's hard to do so. God, we pray that during this time and in the weeks to come, God, that you would be worshiped. Thanks for the time we've had in your word. We pray that you were honored and glorified and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.